So last, uh, this is the last full mill deal, RUF, of the year. Um, and that's really hard for me to fathom. This has been um, my first full school year. Um, RUF minister, um, it's had its ups, it's had its downs. But um, I'm glad to have made it. This semester is going really fast. Uh, but we're going to wrap up Ephesians tonight. And um, something I hadn't said as much this semester as I should have. Um, but our goal week in and week out is for RUF to be a safe place. Uh, whether you're convinced of the truth claims of Christianity, whether you're unconvinced, whether you're skeptical, whether you're doubting, whether you're wrestling, whether you're assured, we want RUF to be a safe place. Uh, for us to come together and examine the truth claims of Christianity. And we do that week in and week out by going to God's Word. And we've been looking at Ephesians this semester. And so we are going to finish it up tonight. So if you would read with me, we will start in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, we come now, uh, we just thank you for this wonderful year that we've had. We pray that you would give us strength and energy to finish well. Uh, Tonight, we pray that you would speak to us uh, by the power of your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to give a nod this this morning, uh, this evening. It's funny, when I preach at churches in the morning, I say this evening in my, yeah, and then when I'm here, I say this morning. That doesn't work. This evening, we're going to... I'm going to give a, a nod to my campus minister, Les Newsom, and um, his helping me th- think through this, these points. Um, it was the, it, the great uh, lyricist and singer, Jordan Sparks, um, who sang, who sings, Never meant to start a war. You know I never want to hurt you. Don't even know what we're fighting for. Why does love always feel like a battlefield? A battlefield, a battlefield. Yes. Um, I don't know why I even included that. Um, you, don't, you don't have to tell some people that life is a battlefield. There's some people that you don't need to tell that to. Because uh, there are some people 
generationally or whatever, um, ethnically, religiously, there are some people that life for them is nothing but a battle. Um, in our context, you think specifically of people who grow up in the inner city, right? Um, who grow, or the poor, the downtrodden. You don't need to tell them minorities, uh, immigrants. That's, that's a universal thing. It's talked about in the Bible. Um, you think about Christians on the front lines in hostile countries across the world. You don't have to tell uh, those kind of people that life is a battle. But when I think about, uh, for most of us, I know, and most of us, the way most of us have grown up, we think about Christianity, I think we can sum it up with one word, safe. The Christianity that most of us in this room have grown up with can be summed up by the word safe. The idea of warfare, especially as it pertains to being a Christian, is completely foreign to us. We pray for persecuted Christians, we hear reports about persecuted Christians, but Really, this idea of warfare is, is foreign to us, at least maybe the way we've, we've thought about it or heard it growing up. Uh, and in a sense, we almost have to introduce ourselves to the idea of warfare before we can even begin to think about what we do once we're in it, right? Our generation and our culture is one where our lives are defined by avoiding struggle. Everything about the American dream is working your tail off to avoid struggle, to avoid discomfort, to pursue comfort, to pursue happiness, right? Paul, think about this, the, grand, the whole letter here. Paul has opened up in this letter this cosmic mystery of God, a plan for the fullness of time, he called it in chapter 1, to unite all things in Jesus, to take this broken, decaying, fragmented world and to unite it all in Jesus, the one that he has exalted to his right hand and put everything under his feet. Jesus is going to take a world dominated by the kingdom of darkness and he is going to transform it into the kingdom of light. And here's the thing. We are blissfully ignorant if we think that is not going to happen without a fight. And we're blissfully ignorant if we think we're not going to be included in that, right? It's three things I want to look at there in your handout there if you want to take notes. Nature, the nature of the battle, the nature of the opposition, the nature of our resources to fight. The nature of the battle. This is just what I want to get across in this first point. The nature of the battle is this. It's real. The battle is real. The fight is real. The struggle is real. We have to understand kind of the big picture here of how our culture views the problem of evil. It's widely assumed... This is kind of subconscious assumption, uh, or presupposition, I guess you'd call it. It's widely assumed that if you drop your religion, if you drop kind of your preconceived, maybe culturally or religiously inherited um, ideas of the supernatural, if you can just let go of that, then the problem of evil becomes something easier to stomach, right, or to deal with. And really, if uh, you look at the grand scheme of things, that this thought, this prevailing thought, has really only come about in the last couple hundred years, which is not very long uh, in the grand scheme of things. Um, but here's the thing. The Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end, the Bible clearly and consistently posits the existence of a personal Satan and his demons. And even just saying that feels weird. Because it's like, oh, I don't know. We don't talk about this, do we? The Bible tells us about a personal Satan. A personal malevolent force. Who makes my voice crack when I preach? A personal malevolent force that seeks the destruction of people. Okay? 
And the dismissal of this idea, though, uh, that's been prevalent in the last couple hundred years, uh, it's linked to the Enlightenment and this whole kind of turn of thought that we are rational creatures and we can figure things out for ourselves. We view the world through our own reasoning and rationality, and we see the world as this closed natural system that's there for us to investigate. And once we get technologically advanced enough, we'll be able to explain everything, right? Um, in fact, in the 19th and 20th uh, and into the 20th century, the widespread belief was that religion was going to die out. Um, because while religion was viewed as playing this role in human evolution, uh, religion played this role. It was this mechanism that helped us cope, right, with this incomprehensible world. We had all these things out in the world that we didn't have explanations for. Is the world flat? Is the world round? Um, what is electricity? What is lightning? What, what, who, who's responsible for all these things? And religion was this way for cultures to kind of cope with this incomprehensible world. And as humans would become technologically more advanced, be able to tap into their own reason a little bit more, religion would be of no use anymore. More. Because we could explain it ourselves and science would be our religion and pretty much has become it, right? But here's the thing. The dying off of religions has not happened. Actually, the complete opposite has happened. All the major world religions are growing. Christianity is exploding in places that it was thought it would never explode. Africa, China. Um, there's underground churches in the Middle East, though you wouldn't even fathom that happening, right? Um, in the 20th century, you know, it, we, we thought the technological advancement was going to help us understand the world and help us how to live, know how to live better. The 20th century is pretty much universally acknowledged as the bloodiest century of all history. In fact, uh, Christians uh, fared the worst. There were more Christians killed in the 20th century than in all the 19th centuries before it combined. Okay? And while no doubt there's no arguing that religion, there's no arguing against the fact that religion can and is at times um, the source of injustice and the source of violence in the world. It was actually, you look back on the 20th century, it was actually the radically secular um, and rational regimes of places like Russia and China and Cambodia, these places that rejected organized religion, that sought to reject God in their society, yet they produced some of the most massive violence history has ever seen against their own people. So the more we have advanced technologically has not dealt with the problem of evil. Actually, as the technology has advanced, we actually just get to see evil more firsthand. Uh, we know it when it happens, wherever it happens, right? Here's the thing. Whenever the world sees evil, it constantly seeks to assure itself by finding the natural explanation. Right? What do I mean there? Think back to the New, Newtown shootings, right? Newtown shootings happen. How do you even begin to fathom uh, what happened there, that these these Barely school-aged children are slaughtered, right? What was the cause? What was the cause? For weeks on end, every news station wanted to know what happened, what caused this. Obsessive video gaming, uh, a a bad mother who was obsessed with guns and didn't lock her guns up, um, poor psychiatric uh, treatment. Surely all these things playing a part. But are those the, is that the explanation we're left with? Um, you think back, maybe a more general one, why do so many teens end up in gangs or selling drugs or whatever, right? Well, it's the, our failing school, so we need to pump more money there. Or it's, um, we need a war on drugs. That's gone real well. The war on poverty has gone just as well. Um, we need a just say no campaign. Did y'all grow up with that? Um, just say no, right? That'll, that'll, if, we just, if we just get kids to learn to just say no, right? 9-11, what was the cause of 9-11, Right? 
just some crazed religious fanatics, right? Or bad foreign policy on America's part, uh, needing to withdraw our, our pride or whatever. Our culture is obsessed with finding the natural explanation, the real explanation behind things. But here the, here's the thing. I think your generation is a prime example that people are slowly awakening that that can't be the case, right? Because we're seeing that slavery has never been more active than it is today in the, um, in, uh, human tra- in the form of human trafficking. We see uh, very starkly that racism has never been more alive than it is today in the genocides of Africa, in the genocides in the Middle East, right? And here's just an honest question worth thinking about. Who is honestly satisfied with the answer that obsessive gaming led someone to slaughter 20-something little kids? Who's going to be satisfied with that? Here's the thing. We get to this passage, we get to the end of Ephesians, and Paul says we do not wrestle against natural explanations. No, Paul says we wrestle against spiritual forces, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. You ever find it interesting at the end of Romans 8, that's kind of a popular chapter of the Bible. Romans 8, Paul kind of spells out these glorious facts about the gospel. And his conclusion at the end of Romans 8, he doesn't say what can be against us or what can condemn us. He says who can be against us. If the gospel's true, Paul says, who can be against us? Who can condemn us? Right? Who? The horror films, horror films, scary movies in um, the 80s and 90s, they're almost cartoonish, right? You have these cartoonish villains like Jason, like, the wee, wee, you know, the, these weird characters that would never be, Freddy Krueger, right? Can't get more cartoonish than a guy that has blades on his, that is weird, right? Um, nothing, but then in the late 90s came this movie. I don't know if y'all, did y'all ever see the Blair Witch Project? There came this movie in the late 90s, okay, called the Blair Witch Project. Nothing happens in this movie. And it is terrifying. I'm telling you. Okay? It's basically, it's, it's, it was a low-budget film, and basically the actors have camcorders. It was like the first, this, it, it broke the mold, because the, the, there's like three characters, and the whole movie is their camcorders, of them going camping out in the woods, and weird, thing happen, weird things happen. Nothing happens in the movie, and it's the most terrifying movie I've ever seen. Okay? Watch it for yourself. But this is what that movie did. This is what, and I think para, paranormal activity is kind of fed off of this, okay? What that movie did was left up the question, left, out, left the question up to the viewer. Is there something out there? And as the movie did that, it terrified you as a viewer. Is there something out there? Is there something? As we look at the evil in the world, can you not help but ask, is there something? Is there someone behind it all. Think about it closer to home. That's kind of a big picture view. Think about it closer to home. What if I told you tonight, if I told you tonight that I knew for a fact someone was after you and they're after you and they are plotting your ultimate doom, right? Uh, they are longing for and plotting your ultimate harm. If I told you that and I, I told you that I knew that for a fact, would you not leave this place a little bit differently? Wouldn't you be a little bit more careful? Maybe get a group to go with you. Maybe stay in the light. Maybe not walk by yourself, right? You know, if you're like me, you're constantly getting hung up on, like, how well things are going. And you think to yourself, um, 
You know, we see ourselves failing left and right. You know, I keep setting my mind to do this and I just keep screwing up over and over again. And we think, what, what is the cause of that? I'm just, I'm miserable. Okay, I'm not reading my Bible enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not talking to my friends enough and we're not, we're not holding each other accountable enough. And we have all these reasons, you know, maybe I, I really messed up with the person I used to date and that is still just driving me into the ground. In other words, we, we're, we're taking what's happening in our life and we're constantly pushing it out. And we're trying to find the natural explanation for it. What Paul is suggesting here is Paul looks and says that the reason for evil in this life is to some some degree not just an impersonal force, but to a degree a very personal force, a personality, a personality dead set on your misery. He calls him Diablo in the Greek, which we get the word diabolos, the devil. Peter tells us that he prowls around like a lion, right? It literally means destroyer. Well, what does he seek to destroy? The best way I've heard it said is this. He is intent on destroying the joy of believing people. He is intent on destroying the joy of believing people. He longs for our separation from God because he knows that's what we were made for. And he knows that's what Jesus came to restore. So just... The battle is real. And maybe that, that great line from the movie, The Usual Suspects, what if the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to make the world believe he didn't exist? I love that line from that movie. The nature of the battle is it's real and it's personal. But let's move on. The nature of opposition. The nature of opposition. How does it come against us? Okay. Where does, first thing, look at this. Where, where does the conflict happen? Look at verse 12, the end of verse 12. He says, in the heavenly places. We've heard this before, right? This conflict takes place in the heavenly places. It's a phrase that Paul's already used. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, he told us that God blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In verse 20 of chapter 1, he said that God raised us up with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Right? The entire letter flowed from those two glorious truths. Okay? Paul has unfolded for us. What he's unfolded in the whole letter for us is that the main place that God is dealing with us, saving us, making us into the image of his son, in the image of his son, is our status, right? Who we are and where we belong. And that's the heavenly places in Christ. We've been given this new identity in Christ, so real and so um, such, so fact, such a fact, such a truth that we can be said to be seated with him. Everything that we are in Christ flows from us being in heavenly places, right? And now Paul says, that's where the battle's happening. That's where it's happening. In other words, the battle is going to take place on the grounds of your identity in Christ, This great salvation, this great thing that God has done for us, that our life is hid in Christ on high. And the very battle of that truth, the devil warring against that truth, is taking place in the same place. The grounds of being in Christ. So in other words, it's going to happen. The battle's going to happen where you struggle to know who you are. That's where the battle's going to happen. In those places where you struggle to know who you are. I don't know how you've heard about spiritual warfare in your life. Um, It's like this 
you know, I, I don't know what you've heard about it. Um, but think about what Paul's been talking about. Chapters 1 through 3, this mind-blowing cosmic thing that God's done for us in Christ. He's, um, we were dead, but now we're alive. We were far off, but now we've been brought near. All these glorious truths that are true of us now because we're in Christ. And then chapter 4 through 6, he started... Um, Listing how all of that carries out over into our everyday lives. The implications of the Christian life. Everyday life. Paul's been talking about the common things. What we looked at last week were the three most fundamental relationships that you can have in life. Your spouse, your family, and your job. Right? And that leads him somehow naturally into talking about spiritual warfare. There's a logical connection. He's saying that it takes place in the everyday. Just as the gospel is to explode and to bring new life and definition and identity in every facet of your life, even in the mundane, even in the everyday, so the spiritual battle is going to take place in the same arena. That's where the battle happens. Because in all of those things, that's where we're easily tempted to place our identity. It's those things which cry out to us to build our identity on them. Who am I going to marry? Does my family have it all together? Do I have a good job? Am I making something of my life, right? Also note, look at verse 12. Also note this. He says that we wrestle with these things. This isn't like battleship where there's like a big wall in between us and we're just like calling out numbers like F12 and G4. Did I hit or miss, right? No, no. This is hand-to-hand combat. I don't know if y'all have ever... I've tried to, like, watch wrestling on TV a few times in the last year uh, because I've gotten to know some wrestlers since I've been here. Like, they have to wear things on their ears so, like, they don't rub their ears off, right? Um, Real wrestling is, like, intense. They're, like, all up on each other. It's weird. Um, Paul says we wrestle, okay? So if you think about that, the main temptations that the devil is going to put in front of us are the things that are closest to us. The things that come most natural to us. The devil's not the boogeyman, right? He's not hiding in these like fanciful things like out to get you. Like you go see this movie, the devil's going to get you. I I don't know how you've heard it in your life. He's going to be all up in the everyday. He's going to be in your dating relationships. He's going to be in your friendships. He's going to be in your resume. Or at least in your head about how you deal with your resume. In all of your activities. These are always the things in our lives that are trying to gain the up in our life. They're always, these are the things that are trying to gain top priority in our lives. And so it happens in our own lives and hearts. You know, this can even come, this can come in, in the rejection of things. It can come in the things where you say, well, I don't do that. That can be the thing. Right? Devil, the devil, it's just, it makes us like, don't say that. He who must not be named. I'll, there's, I could spend all, I could spend all night talking how brilliant that was a rallying. Anyway, I won't go to Harry Potter. Um, the devil, he who must not be named, is not going to come to you and say, hey, be a terrible person. It's awesome. It's not how he's going to work. He'll use your own pride. He'll use your own love of self. He will use those things which you seek meaning in life with. He'll use those things that you look at and you say, you know, I need this. I deserve this or I don't deserve this. 
these our own self-distorted self-definitions. So how are we going to do battle against that? If it's all this up, if it's all up in my grill and it knows me better than I know myself, how are we going to deal with this? And we'll close with this: the nature of our resources. What are we to do? How can we fight? Look at verse 10. The first thing, look at verse 10. How are we supposed to fight? He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So for starters, what he's cluing us into is you don't have anything. You need something outside yourself. You don't have any resources in and of yourself. But what this also means is that we don't fight the battle the same way that the world or the devil would have us fight it. What are the devil's tools in battle, right? They're the world's tools in battle. Control, power, intimidation, slavish fear. What were Jesus' tools? That, by the way, his 12 closest disciples never understood until after he died. He came. He died. He sacrificed. Shows up in a barn when the whole world isn't even watching. He serves. He gives of himself. The greatest temptation that we face in life is the desire to win by force and power. Y'all, we are slaves to being in control. All of us. We're slaves to it. Everything the world offers and sells us does so on the basis of putting you in control. They say sex sells, but it's really control that sells. You having control. This is, what the, this is what the Lord of the, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings get so right, right? This is what the ring of power was all about. Not to go all nerdy on you. But why is, in that trilogy, why is everyone so um, slavishly hungering for the ring? My precious, right? Most everyone's immediate thought is to wield it for their own power and their own gain. From Bormir um, to Galadriel, the queen elf, and Gandalf himself. And even by the, little, by the end, sweet little Frodo doesn't want to give it up, right? Until he gets his finger bitten off. Spoiler! Um, <laughs> just a question. Paul urges us to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. But what is it that you are always grasping at? What is your ring? What, is the, how, what are the ways in which we are constantly grasping at the ring? Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's manipulation in relationships. You're so good at working people. Either shaming them or encouraging them to get the desired effect. You're in control. Maybe it's through ignoring them. Or maybe it's through belittling them. Whatever it is, that's how you get your control. Maybe it's involvement. This is a big one. Involvement. Because, hey, you know, if my week is full, then I don't have time, any time to screw up, right? At least I'm in control, you think, when you've got all these things that you're doing and all these strings that are pulling. But are you really pulling the strings or is your calendar pulling you? Third way, I, I thought of no better way than to just to call it the hipster way, right? We all want to be hipsters. Come on, let's be honest. We make fun of them. We all want to be hipsters. We all want to do it our own way, and we don't want to have anyone else that does it like us. Right? The ring is always held out there, doing it on our own power. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his might. 
His might is nothing like we would think of might. In fact, Paul says in Corinthians that it is utter foolishness to the world. It's chapter 5. It's all these things that we've seen in Ephesians. Chapter 4, chapter 5. It's unity. It's using your gifts to serve. It's submitting to one another out of love. To use my time to serve others instead of serving myself. It's radical and it's completely countercultural. Being in the Lord's might looks nothing like what you would think it does. And yet so many of us are walking around every day thinking we're so weak. But here's the last thing. The armor that God's given. The armor that's God's give, that God's given. You know, there's been attempts. Um, um, people like list, you know, just like these... A, what's the word? Extravagant list of like each piece of armor and what all it can apply to. I'm not going to go there. There's actually a Puritan who who wrote three volumes on the armor of God, like over a thousand pages. It was ridiculous. I'm not going to read that. Um, but look at what Paul says about the armor in 13. He says, take it up. He doesn't say find it. He doesn't say fashion it. He says, take it up, meaning it's there to be put on. Meaning it's already ours in Christ. We need to put it on. It's something that's already ours in Christ. And they are spiritual armor. Spiritual armor. Okay? And it's saying something about our identity. We've been talking about our... Paul's been going here the whole letter. It's about our identity in Christ. What is it like to be in Christ? These are all the things that he lists here. Are true of us because we're in Christ. Go through them really quick. The belt of truth... Meaning that integrity and humble fortitude, confidence in yourself, knowing that you don't have to pretend anymore. That the truth about you is okay. That the truth of how broken and weak you are is okay. Because you know how strong you are in Christ. And that truth is like a belt. It holds everything together. The breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate would have protected from vital organs, right? I've got this breastplate of righteousness that... that Protects my vitals because God is my righteousness and I no longer am a slave to having to prove myself. Because he's my righteousness. What he has done is all I need. The shoes of readiness or the gospel boots. I don't know what's cooler. Um, The peace of finally understanding what my life is about and wanting to share it with others. The shield of faith, right? In our day, everything, anything that smacks of faith is like weakness, right? Uh, If you want to attack a position, just say it has faith in it, right? But this is the shield of faith. It protects us. It's that from which we draw life and strength from all that would threaten us. The helmet of salvation, a guy named Charles Hodge said this, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the fact that he is saved. Nothing can take that away. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's a defensive and offensive thing. The sword can be defense or offense, right? What is the Word of God? Obviously, the Scriptures. But why do we need the Word? Why are we called to meditate on the Word? Why are we called to know the Word? What does the Word do? It tells us who we are. And when I wield that as a sword, what I'm saying is only Jesus can tell me who I am. Here's the thing, y'all. Paul takes all this mind-blowing, we could spend weeks on it. He puts it here at the end of Ephesians. Every one of these things that he lists, things that are given to us in the gospel because they tell us who we are in Christ. 
We need that. We, it, the whole letter Paul has been saying, be who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. If you find yourself under assault, I, I'll just admit, this semester has been rough for me. And I can't even quite put my finger on it. But if you find yourself under assault, like I personally, there's just times in my life where I just feel like someone is personally coming after me. And I can't even quite put on my finger. struggling. All I can see is my failure. All I can see is the things that I can't do. See how broken I am, right? The chances are that in those times, what's happened is you've been disconnected. What's been assaulted is your sense of who you are. And the gospel says that only Jesus can tell me who I am. Revelation 12, another weird passage, but I love this. Revelation 12, we get this picture of this great dragon, the devil himself. He's called the deceiver of the whole world. And we're told that he's, he does battle with the angels and then he's thrown down to earth. And then John says this in Revelation 12, verse 10. He says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. This is it, y'all. The battle that we wage, the spiritual battle that we wage, is the struggle to make certain that we do not forget that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb and nothing can take that away. Here's the thing. If you have not fully understand, understood that in the end, God will judge you on the basis of what Christ has done, If you have not understood that in the end, God is going to treat you the way he treats Jesus, then you're forever going to be an insecure Christian. God looks at you and he sees Jesus. And Paul says, put that on. In Romans, Paul actually says, let us put on Jesus. I love that. You begin to realize this, that God looks at me and sees Jesus. That when God judges me, he judges me on what Christ has done, not what I've done. That when he wants to treat me a certain way, he treats me as as he treats Christ. When we actually hear that, it becomes the most beautiful thing we've ever heard. And we think to ourselves, people need to hear about this. Here's the thing. What if there is a God and he is not just tolerating you? but embracing you? What if he made a pronouncement that has about you that has changed your status that has nothing to do about what's in your heart, but about what is on his heart for you? What if he's made a promise that what he begins in us, he will not stop until he completes it? What if this God is committed to our holiness in such a way that he will not stop until it ends in eternal happiness and joy? If there's one thing you walk away from this semester in Ephesians, this whole year, whatever, I hope it's this, that there is something in Jesus, in the gospel, that is altogether lovely, and it is for you. 
So the question is, Paul, I think it's brilliant that he he ends it this way because he's basically saying, are you ready to do battle? Because there's only one way you will stand, and it's yours in Christ. It's yours in Christ. It's yours in Christ. That's it. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that at times the struggle is all too real. But if we're honest, we just feel like we're wrestling with ourselves. We feel like such failures. We feel so broken. We feel so hopeless. Father, would you assure us once again, over and over again, that you've done something for us in so cosmic in Christ that nothing else can stand and nothing will prevail against it and nothing will pluck us from your hand and there's no one who can condemn and there's no one who can be against us and that in him we are more than conquerors. Father, we need Jesus. We pray that you would give him to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.